Blog Talk Radio. Hi, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I am the founder of Alzheimer's Speaks Resource website, blog, and radio. And it's my passion to educate the world about Alzheimer's disease and caregiving, which came to me through dealing with my mother's 30-year journey. Been very um, an interesting process for me, and I uh, I'm so thrilled that you're here. We're actually going to be rolling out a brand new site as well called Caregiver Campus, and I'll keep you posted on that. Um, but if you're interested in getting more information on Caregiver Campus, you can just go to www.caregivercampus and sign up, and we'll give you um, information as that rolls out, which will probably be in the next. Um, four to six weeks on that. For listeners who are new to our show today, I just want to give you a brief introduction about Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. Our goal is to give voice to those afflicted with memory loss and empower them to live purpose-built lives. We want to raise awareness, give hope, and share the real everyday life stories of living with Alzheimer's disease. Today, we do have Rick Phelps with us, who is our channel expert here on Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. And Rick was diagnosed with early onset disease known as EOAD in June of 2010. Rick is also the founder of Memory People on Facebook. And if you have not uh, signed up to join, I would highly encourage you to do that. Um, Rick, do you want to just tell people a little bit about Facebook, um, your group there, Memory People? Well, I'd be happy to, Lori. Memory People is a closed site. Uh, meaning close, we are on Facebook, but you have to be, uh, what am I trying to say? <laughs> oh, Lori? Uh-huh. Oh, I thought I lost you. Yeah. Okay, I can go ahead now. Can you hear me? Yep, can hear you good. Okay, well, anyway, I was just saying that Memory People is a closed site on Facebook, meaning that uh, you have to be a member to uh, join, obviously. You have to be asked to join, and then we accept. We don't turn anyone down. However, uh, the posts that you see on Memory People can only be seen there. They can't be seen on regular Facebook. The member can see the posts on their Facebook because, obviously, they are a member. Some people get confused with that, but it's a very secure and safe site. We take that very serious because there's some topics that we talk about. It's very personal, of course, you know. So as of today, we're pushing uh, 1,200 members and what it would be, maybe seven seven months, I think, or something like that. So and we have members all over the world in uh, U.K., United States, and Australia, and England. It's uh, just exploding, and, and I just couldn't be happier. Wonderful. And one thing that I just wanted to say is when you say that they have to be a member, there is no fee to be a member it's just asking to join, correct? Right, right. What it is, uh, that's that's how we do that. We just ask people to join. That way, uh, you know, Facebook is Facebook, and you just it's the Internet, and you just got to be careful. So we want to make sure we don't screen anybody or anything like that. We just want to make sure that the people that we do have there want to be there. Yeah, and there's no soliciting of business and things. You guys are really good about that, so it's, it's just true interaction between people who have the disease, caregivers, both professional and family, and um, businesses with services that are, are just all offering to work together to make the world a better place with dementia. So, well, thanks, Rick, for sharing that. 
Um, on our homepage, listeners, I just want to point you to um, some of our links. If you decide that you want to join Rick and I on being advocates on steroids for Alzheimer's disease, feel free to push the show out to your friends and family and coworkers by just liking us or tweeting us. We would really appreciate that very much. Um, during the show, if you have questions and you are listening by your computer, um, there is a chat box, so go ahead and just, you know, shoot in a question or a comment. I'll be monitoring those as, as we go. Or you can call in directly at 714-364-4757 and ask your question or make your comment live. Um, you'll be asked to just push one and then I'll know that you're in the queue. So today's show I am really, really excited about because you know, I'm just kind of a nutcase on this whole Alzheimer's and dementia, and I, I really believe that this is um, something globally that we all have to work together at. And so who better to have on but Tabby, who is a representative of Dementia Advocacy and Support Network International. Um, Tabby lives in St. Charles, Montana, and she is a professional educator and writer. And she has published uh, various types of curriculum. She does freelance um, features and news. She's written grants and various reports and web contacts. Um, she is a graduate of the University of Missouri and has her master's in education. And um, she's just, uh, I, I'm just thrilled to have you here. So how are you doing, Tabby? I am doing great. It's so nice to be here. And Rick, it's so nice to hear your voice. It is you too, Tabby. How are you doing today? I am doing great today. Um, I'm just delighted to be here and so pleased at the work that you've done that has taken what Dassin began and just taken it to the moon. We never got to Facebook. I'm so glad you're using Facebook. You know, you've got you've doubled the members that you have in a year, I think. I don't know exactly how long you've been doing this, and it's taken us 10 to get to about 500 people. So you're you're getting the message out there, and I'm thrilled about that. Well, I appreciate it. It, it, it takes it takes a little bit of time, but we're we're growing, and I couldn't be happier. But uh, what what you're doing uh, is is just well, I can't wait to hear your story. Go ahead. Okay. Well, why don't why don't we go ahead and just start? And Tabby, if you can tell us a little bit about yourself and and how you know how your connection to uh, to the support group came to be. Okay, well, as as you said, I have been lifelong an educator, and um, I am still teaching college, doing it online, and I'm here today under an alias because there's such a stigma attached with Alzheimer's and dementia that I don't think the college would appreciate my publicizing the fact under my real name. So I'm Tabby today, and... Um, I'm just, as I said, I'm just delighted to be here. I was uh, first diagnosed in 1995, although at that point the uh, neurologist who diagnosed me uh, believed that there was really nothing that could be done for me, and so he didn't even give me a diagnose, diagnosis. He just said, "What you know, what's wrong with you? You really can't do anything about, so just go ahead and enjoy your life and relax. So I went back to working full-time and commuting six hours round trip to St. Louis to attend a three-hour graduate school class and come home 
three nights a week, and I did that for about seven years before. And took, so it took that long because I lived so far away. I could only take a course or two at a time. If he had told me that I had dementia, I don't know whether it would have been a good thing. I really don't. I might have curled up and died considering the way I felt when I was actually given a diagnosis. But I still believe that every patient has the inherent right to information about his condition. Some doctors disagree with that. Some, there are some circumstances where it may not be appropriate. But I don't think the rule of thumb is just don't tell people. I, I agree. I think, um, and Rick, I, I would love to hear your input on this. But, I, I mean, personally, I think we all have a right to know um, what is going on with our with our lives. And I was talking with somebody the other day, and they put it so nicely. They said, you know, we're all disabled. And dementia is just another form of a disability. And none of us are perfect. And we shouldn't be embarrassed about it. We should embrace it and, um, you know, go for the gusto and, and live life to its fullest, no matter what our situation. But, Rick, what are, yep. what are your thoughts on that? Well, Lori, I'll tell you, it's just like Tabby said, the stigma that surrounds this disease. It is just absolutely mind-boggling. I, I try to explain to people that it's a disease. It's no different than cancer or heart failure or high blood pressure. You know, it just happens to be a disease of the brain. I'm no different than anybody else. I mean, I do everything that everybody does, except I just can't remember it. I have, uh, you know, my short-term memory is gone. Um, it's been going for some time, but it's 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 all but gone now. I I can no longer recall anything that happened yesterday unless somebody tells me about it. And then, and the thing about with this disease, as Tabby well knows, uh, or will later on, that when when your short-term memory goes, it, it's gone forever unless somebody reminds you of it. Um, it's some people say, well, can't you remember this or can't you remember that? Well, no. Once it's gone, it's just it, that you don't recall it unless somebody else reminds you of it, and then it's still fuzzy. But uh, the stigma around it absolutely needs change. They they diagnosed me a year and a half ago or a year ago, I guess it was, and then I was in the neurologist's office for 17 minutes. That's one of the chapters that I named in my new book coming out, and because 17 minutes is, is, is just ridiculous to give somebody a terminal disease diagnosis. They never told us about the Alzheimer's Association. They never told us about what we should expect. He never told me about what the Exelon patch was going to do. It was just, it was just craziness. Yeah, I, it's, it's I, really difficult um, out there, and there's so much education that needs to be done. And given that, Carol, I or Tabby, I would really like to um, flip back to you and have you explain what the Dementia Advocacy and um, Support Network International really is all about, if you wouldn't mind. I would be happy to. But first I wanted to add to what Rick said. And for me, uh, dementia is not a disability. It's a handicapping condition. Okay. Uh, And the reason that's important to me is because at the Dementia Advocacy and Support Network International, we believe that one of the worst things that happens to people is that because the society thinks of us as on our way to dead, they treat us like dead men walking, and they over-accommodate in many situations and uh, take away our, our, our need necessity to do things that we still can do and enjoy doing. And, in fact, because there is 
this wonderful thing in the brain called neuroplasticity, you have to continue to do the things you can or your brain says, well, those are well, those are wasted connections. We'll put that energy elsewhere. And you lose the ability to do the things you could do before. So we think of the Dementia Advocacy and Support Network International as a means of empowering people with dementia to do the things that they can, to stay involved with the world socially and, if they can, through working as long as they can, whatever else they can do, to maintain the brain that they have, and in in some cases, with certain kinds of dementia, um, to be able to rehabilitate themselves to a certain degree. I was very lucky to have the chance to do that. When I, when I, when I was diagnosed, I uh, was told I couldn't work anymore. And I went to the uh, Department of Vocational Rehabilitation after about 12 months and said, look, <laughs> you know, I have to work. Find out what's the matter with me. Help me match my skills with a job that I can do or else declare me totally disabled and help me get on disability. I want to work. I like to work. I wasn't ready to stop working. And I bet Rick would say the same thing. So the Department of Voc Rehab uh, put me through an extensive diagnostic process, and they did say that I had dementia. Actually, I have a kind called multi-infarct dementia, which means I've had a lot of little momentary mini-strokes, and none of them are really significant enough to affect anything major at the time. But over time, the impact of them in the brain builds up, and you lose some of your cognitive abilities. So I went through all of that screening, and then they said, well, yep, (laughs) you know, you really are unable to earn a living at any job at this point in time, but let's figure out what you can do and see if we can fix that. So they put me through about four months of computer-based cognitive retraining. And we started with just two goals. And one of them was to uh, increase my reaction speed because I have very much slowed cognitive processes. And I sat in front of a screen for uh, maybe two to three days a week looking and waiting for a light to flash. And when the light flashed, I was to click the mouse as quickly as I could. And after every two-minute series of flashes, it would show me a report, and it would say, well, you weren't paying attention here, and you were paying attention here, and you were looking away again over there, or whatever it was. And I learned through the feedback to be able to do a better job of focusing my attention so that I reacted appropriately. And I moved up two levels, which is really kind of good. Um, and and that that alone empowered me to be able to do things that I couldn't do when I was first diagnosed. So it it was really, really useful. I will tell you that cognitive retraining, that kind of neurofeedback retraining, is kind of like digging a tunnel with a teaspoon. You have to do a jillion times practicing something before the new neural connections begin to form. But when they do, you're back able to function in some way. Wow. So, now, Carol, I want you to repeat two things for us. Um, where did you go to get that training again so our audience can maybe jot that down and contact people in their area? What organization did you go to get tested and retrained? Okay. I went to – I'm in the United States. I know all of your listeners may not be, but I went to, to the federal program – the Department of Vocational Rehabilitation. The government's very interested in our continuing to work, everybody. 
So people who have sustained uh, some sort of disability and become unable to work, the government funds a program that is designed to figure out what's going on with you, find a way to accommodate the problems you have, help you build a new career path, and get you working again. And it's all free. You've are, Well, you've already paid for it through your taxes, and I do know there's a difference between that and being free. <laughs> so uh, it's a wonderful program. It takes a while to get in, and now that they're the government funding is getting cut back, and there are so many people with disabling conditions, especially with all the soldiers that are coming home wounded. It's a little more difficult to get in. But if if you are of working a working age, and you think you might be interested in uh, learning that way uh, and finding out how you might get back to work, you would go to the un- not the place where you collect welfare, but the the unemployment services program in my town it was called the career center okay and uh you asked to speak to a voc rehab counselor and they set me up with an appointment and i began the process and about six months later i finally had what they had decided was my solution and the help that they were going to give me to get started you know in you know working again so it's the department of vocational rehabilitation and if you look it up online just google that it will give you lots and lots and lots of returns, and then your job is to find the office in your state and then in your in the, your nearest area. Okay. The other thing I wanted you just to recap was um, you said you didn't like the word disability, and you used the word handicap, but it was more than just handicap. Um, what was the phrase? Do you remember? I said um, handicapping condition. Handicapping condition. Yeah. Okay. Rick has a diagnosable disease. You know, it's a process that is formally a, a disease. But I have met so many people through um, Dassin or DASNI. It was originally Dassin, then we turned it to Dassin International because we had members from four countries right off the bat. Um, I've met so many people who have what I call a combination, well, it is a combination of conditions. Like learning disabilities, dementia is almost never simple vanilla. You've always got a little bit of this and a touch of that, and oh, by the way, you don't sleep well, and you took cold medicine today, and you feel like you're out of your body anyway. There's lots of things that contribute to the condition of reduced brain function, and if you can treat any of them, you're in better in better shape than if you didn't. And uh, I've had many friends that were told they had early onset dementia, and then they discovered that they had, for example, sleep apnea. And once they got on their on their um, CPAP machines, they were back to being functional enough that they were no longer diagnosable. Isn't that uh, something? Yeah. So I, I'm really afraid of the diagnosis that people say that's dementia because dementia is not a diagnosis. It's a descriptive term for a series of conditions. And um, that's exactly some, right. Uh, yeah. And Rick, you ha- unfortunately you have one of the ones that's diagnosable you know you do officially have a disease and people with that one disease that have it exclusively know that their course is pretty much going to be downhill from there on unlike some people as fortunate as i who had treatment for a number of different things and um you know now i am more functional by far than i was when i was first diagnosed with multi-infarct dementia wow can 
can you tell us a little bit more about the network, um, like when it started and how it okay. started? And yeah, yeah, it's an interesting story. Uh, uh, I I found these people in the year 2000 because uh, a friend of a friend, who, well, a person that became a friend of mine, started a website called Dealing with Personal Memory Loss, and uh, there were. Oh, probably twenty of us that's uh, that were very aggressive in doing our online research to try to find out first of all what the heck's the matter with me that I'm being this way, and uh what can be done about it and We bumped into each other there on dealing with personal memory loss. The woman that started its name was Laura Smith online that is not her her real name, but as Rick has said, you've got to be really careful what you do online. And uh, Laura connected us, and we all realized that we had several common needs. Some of us were already diagnosed, and we realized that it just um, it was necessary to get people who had a condition like that educated and connected with each other because there were lots of services for caregivers of people with Alzheimer's, but next to nothing at that point in time, nothing that we could find that was available to people who had dementia. And like me, many of us were isolated in our homes. There might have been a program at an Alzheimer's Association, you know, 50, 60 miles away, but we're now at home and we can't drive, and those programs are very were very rare at that time. So they were of no use to us. I even went to Alzheimer's caregivers groups and did that for a while and did my little educating people thing for them. But it didn't serve my needs, number one. And number two, a lot of the times the caregivers' needs are different enough that it would upset me when caregivers would start being very angry, talking about their anger with their person with with dementia and say things like, well, he's so sneaky. I I find this hidden there and that hidden there. And I'm saying, you know, wait a minute. I put things down places and forget where I've put them down. That is not sneaky. That is memory loss. Don't attribute an additional condition of a lack of character to me. So I had to I had to kind of back out of the caregiver meetings at that point because they just weren't helpful and they were upsetting me. I, I love how you define that though. That you know, it's not the character. I mean, it's not it's the disease, and it's not uh, it's not something that someone's purposely trying to do to be deceitful or argumentative or whatever it might be. It just it just is. Yeah. And there is a huge, huge difference. And, there, and how we respond is. to that is huge. So um I, I just so appreciate all the insights that you that you have. Now it looks like you've got different types of message message boards for people to communicate and are yes. affiliated with some other associations. So if you wouldn't mind sharing some information on that too, that would be great. Yes, I'd be happy to. At any rate, having met at uh, through Coping with Personal Memory Loss, about 12 of us decided to get together and form an organization to help the people with memory loss themselves, not caregivers, although we have always, from the beginning, been willing to have caregivers join us and appreciative when they did. So we formed a Yahoo group that's listed as DASN, D-A-S-N, and um, it's kind of like Rick's group. It's a closed group. You have to apply to join. 
and uh, our messages are not made public except to members. And at this point, we have an archive of like thousands of of um, messages that have gone back and forth between us and, and the other members. And people, the professionals who have joined us, have actually received their PhDs through research that they did with us, either online with us individually or because we made personal contacts, or through our through our archives. The, Betsy Peterson wrote the book Voices of Alzheimer's, and although we were not her only source, I go and read her, her materials and I go, mm, there's my friend Morris, and that's Jan, and this is Chip, and, you know, so... We are a huge resource to professionals. We have been in the past. I think now people are enough interested in early onset dementia that other kinds of opportunities for for research are are available to them. But we're very proud of that fact. A woman by the name of Christine Jonas Simpson, who taught nursing in Canada, got her Ph.D. doing research with us about the experiences that we had with dementia. A woman by the name of Linda Clare, who's a professor in the United Kingdom, did the same thing. Their focuses were slightly different, but their dissertation's out about us, and we're really pleased with that. So you can join that Dasson group. The best way to find us, both our message boards and also our chats, which we have daily, is to go to our independent website, not the Yahoo group, because that takes a while to get into. But the independent website is D. ASNinternational.org. And you can see the blogs of a number of people with dementia there. Uh, you can see the activities that have been taking place in and around what we do. Uh, find links to the Changing Melody Conference that is held in Canada every year, which was the first, maybe the first, and definitely the first successful conference that was not just for caregivers but for people with dementia as well. And they have been a wonderful resource for us. They've helped us, for one thing, to, to be able to connect with each other. And it's an interesting experience that that you have to have the dementia to understand because in the beginning you have the disease and everybody that knows you thinks that you've changed and that you're almost gone. And the relationship with them changes and often drops away because family members don't know how to deal with us. And yet people with dementia get together and we have such a body of similar experiences both with our brains and with the people in our own lives that we feel we're like a family reunion. And so Dessen has met first in Montana, uh, the second time in Kansas City. The third time I put together a reunion in Oklahoma in a campground. (laughs) We had a lovely time. We had about 35 people I think only two came from out of the country. One came from um, Brazil, and oh well, a couple from Canada, and then the rest from the United States, and renewed acquaintances and had kind of little mini workshops because the thing we wanted to do. We've all been robbed of our careers, you know, and it's it's devastating. So we have we have an agenda as a group: first to help ourselves, next to help our loved ones, and last to advocate for others. And advocating often means both with and against the national organizations. The Alzheimer's Association is an enormous resource to everybody, but sometimes our advocacy 
it rubs up against some of their things. For example, in my town, we would have uh, meetings for caregivers, and at the meetings, and they would do this in all of their advertising, they would say that they would have a respite room for people with dementia. The idea being that the caregiver needs a break from us. And that may be true. I mean, I absolutely know that that's true. But the impact of hearing that I'm so offensive that somebody needs a break from me, upon me, is devastating. So I went back to them and I said, look, I'll be glad to happy to, to help with that process, but let's call it a hospitality room, not a respite room. Well, so we the, go ahead. The, the thing there, too, is one of the things that I realized on my journey with my parents was that as a caregiver, I'm not all that, and nobody wants to be strapped to me 24-7 either. <laughs> right. So, so it's, it's an even playing field, and I like the idea of the hospitality room because both sides, you know, need a break every once in a while, and that's just normal, everyday relationships. It with, sure with is. I When when I, I – my, my husband is instead, but I, I when I was married – I had to quit my work, and I had a very social job because I was a teacher. You know, 130 kids a day and and the entire faculty and everything around me, in addition to my personal life and my friends. And then I got dementia, and my my social circle went from, you know, maybe 150 people a day to my husband and a professional provider, you know, like maybe once or twice a month I would see a, a doctor. That makes that person who's in your life, and if you're a caregiver, it's the same thing. You are isolated with this other person. The one person who is your social life gets as big as Mount Rushmore. Everything they do is your only social relationship, and that's exhausting on both sides. It's just not healthy. You know, it it isn't healthy because, you know, variety is the spice of life, and, uh, it gets old and it gets wearing on, on both. I think, you know, patterns and all of those things can be helpful, but again, it's, you know, it's about relationships. It's about the social interaction and, and the social activity that, that spurs us on. When, when things get too routine, I mean, most of us can probably, you know, remember a time, me probably more often than I should admit, where the car drives me. You know, because I'm multitasking and I'm kind of zoned out because it's such a pattern. And that's yeah. not healthy. And we do the same thing, I think, with our relationships and, you know, the tasks um, within them. And and it's not good, you know, the spontaneity and um, yeah. the true connection, um, the laughter, the, you know, the sorrow, all of that stuff just deepens our relationships. Yeah, and and the lack of them is hugely depriving. We human beings are social animals. If we want to really punish a human being in prison, we put them in solitary confinement. And being all the time with only one other person isn't exactly solitary confinement. But when the other person is absent or absent-minded, as in the case of caregivers, they're paying attention to the other things they need to do in their lives. You know, or absent in in the case of me because I cannot be the partner or the spouse or the um, the family member that I ever was before. You're still socially isolated. 
And it's not healthy at all. So one of the things Daxon started to do, and we were successful with it, uh, on our message boards and in our few conferences and in a couple of towns, mine being one of them, we formed uh, support groups that were both the people with dementia and the caregivers at the same time. And we did, as I said, we didn't do a lot of it because we were so spread out all over the world. But we found that sometimes a, a caregiver of somebody else, uh, for example, um, I have a friend whose husband's name is Dave. Mary is the one who has dementia. If I would talk to Dave as a person with dementia about what was happening to to me, he would understand better what Mary was trying to explain to, to him in her own words and vice versa. I I had very little understanding of caregiver issues because I started out as a single woman. I'd never been married. I didn't ever plan to get married when I was first diagnosed and I wasn't married. I'd talk to the Alzheimer's Association and say, what do I do? And they would say, a person without a spouse is in trouble. And that was all they had to say to me. Well, that's so, a big help. <laughs> yeah, it, it was. And it made me very angry. There are a lot of places where I'm still angry. But uh, because I was able to get to know caregivers and hear the things that they had to say in our groups, where because they were in front of their partners, it was not okay to just rage against the people with dementia. There's a place for that. You know, I know there there really is. I, I totally accept that. But because we could talk with each other and with each other's spouses or partners or caregivers, we were much be- better able to understand them. And it was out of those experiences that people, the, the, the Dessen group developed a new term. A lot of times people talk about caregivers, and that hurts my feelings. I still cared a lot about my spouse. There were a lot of things that I did for him. I worried about him. I loved him. I took care of him the best I could. So I was a care partner, and he was a care partner. And as I've seen in about personally in about five different situations, interestingly enough, because caregiving is so difficult, frequently the caregiver ends up to be the one with the worst health. And as in the case of my partner, he died before I did. And in the end of the relationship, I was the caregiver for him almost totally. He couldn't leave the house. He couldn't drive. I had to drive him into St. Louis to go to doctor's appointments when I was living, you know, 70 miles away from St. Louis. And I had to be driving on superhighways in a time when it was sort of questionable whether I should have been driving. So we have a lot of politically correct language like that. We are care partners. You are a care partner. Uh, you're a care partner not only to the person you take care of, but also hopefully to the rest of your family because dementia is a family disease. Everybody is affected. Everybody has to partner in taking care of a person with dementia. We also talk about people with dementia as being PWID, P-W-I-D, P for people. The people come first with D for dementia. The dementia comes last. We are still people first. And we hope people never forget that, although they do. And then the other side of that, and you won't like this one, (laughs) because anybody can get dementia at a moment's notice. All it takes is a car wreck or getting good and drunk. Now, that's not a, uh, I mean, that is not um, in itself an event of being drunk, a diagnosis of dementia. But get good and drunk, and I can show you what dementia is like. So we call the normally functioning world PABs, temporarily able-brained people. (laughs) Okay. 
a stigma associated with it, with them. But uh, it's the same idea. You have to let go of control. You have to do as much as you can for yourself. You have that obligation. But you have to let go of control of your future. It was very tempting for us always to say, we can beat this thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Rick, did you ever go through that sense where you thought you were going to beat it? I I still am in that mindset because I'm in a mindset where I'm going to keep on going until I can no longer keep on going. I tell people all the time I could have curled up on the couch and watched soap operas all day or I could have done, made something positive out of this terrible diagnosis, and that's exactly what I've done. I've, I've always been like that. I was in EMS for a long, long time and, and law enforcement. I enjoy helping people, and, and this is my way of giving back now. I I do a daily video um, that I post on uh, Memory People on YouTube, and it's reached out to so many uh, caregivers and patients alike. And I've said for many, many months now, well, ever since I can, was diagnosed, that I know more about this disease than any doctor or any neurologist I've been to because I have it. You know, they they think they know, but I guarantee you I know. I know more about this disease. I know what it does because I have it, you know. And I, I tell them when I speak at uh, different engagements for the Alzheimer's Association, the people before me, you know, the professionals, the doctors, professors and stuff, they all have a good message. But when I get up on the stage and my wife's with me and we do a question and answer period for them. That, that's what people want to hear. They want to know how a normal person deals with this every day. You know, that's exactly what they want to hear. And I try to answer everybody's questions. Some of them, obviously, I can't, but to the best of my ability. And I tell everyone all the time, just because this is what I go through, I mean, Grandma or your Aunt Betty or whoever is going to be, uh, is going to is going to go through some of the stuff I do. I know I'm having a terrible time now with horrific nightmares and, and terrible time sleeping I've had for about three months now, but it's it's just one of the things of the disease, you know. Yeah, well, the, the nightmares sometimes come as a result of the medications, and and um, that it does happen, undoubtedly. One of our members talks about them because she doesn't want to give up her medication. It's being lively dreams. <laughs> she has lively dreams. You also well, brought up... Go ahead. I've been told I've been told that that it could be the medication, but the only problem I have with that is I haven't uh, changed my medication right. for a year. You know, so I don't. Right. I don't know, but like I said, I'm not a doctor, but I've been told that. Yeah. Well, your your idea of you are the expert. Uh, we had twelve years ago. That's what we said. We are the experts in dementia. Doctors know the physiologies. Doctors know the chemistry of treatment. Doctors don't know what dementia is like. We are the experts, and people need to listen to us. And so you've you've taken that to another level. Our first, our first, and my, to my way, most seminal experience with Dassin was having Christine Bryden, who is the author of the book "Who Will I Be When I Die," and then the book "Dancing with Dementia." Go for Dassin to Alzheimer's Disease International in the year, I think that was 2001, in Christchurch, New Zealand. And she made the first ever plenary session address at Alzheimer's Disease International led by a person with dementia. And, of course, everybody gave her a standing ovation, and they were just amazed. And 
you know, it, it was the beginning for us. We also had an information booth there where we handed out literature about our organization. At that point, we were a 501c3 nonprofit, so we were able to accept funds to help get people traveling and speaking. Um, and and at, a, at one point, we ended up deciding that we didn't want to be a 501c3 anymore. But in, in Australia, one of the pharmaceutical companies to fund part of her travel. In the United States, um, the pharmaceutical companies and the Congress have things so locked up with each other that they are not even allowed to speak to patients, let alone to fund any of our activities. And I've knocked on a few doors. I know that for a fact. And that's the first thing they'll tell you is we can't talk to you. I've tried going in just as a representative of the group and not mentioning <laughs> that I had dementia. And um, I got a reception, but then when they figured out what the group was really all about, they would kind of back off again. So we were not able to get funding from the sources that should have been funding us, in my opinion. It, and it's really sad as a speaker and trainer, a lot of times, you know, I'll get asked, am I associated to a pharmaceutical? And that can make or break if they will have me speak or not because yeah. they're, they're so paranoid of things being non-biased. And um, it, it's just very, very interesting in the conversations with the pharmaceutical companies because they really are trying to get out um, a diverse mode of information to help people. And, you know, and, and granted, we still need these drugs to be developed. You know, I, I think you know, definitely, you know, cure is a long ways down the road, but you still have to start um, or you're never going to finish, you know. Um, yeah. And and working together to do some of these social models and social support groups and networks, um, to me, just makes a lot of sense. I don't know, you know, what what the two of you think, but I, that's something I, I, I understand the concern, but again, I think it's, I think it's over the edge, personally. Well, the pharmaceutical companies are businesses, and they're motivated by profit, and you make, can make a lot more money selling pills than you can having social events for people with dementia. I love that idea. The first one that I know about, I think they called it the Memory Cafe in Switzerland, and it was this was years and years ago. We tried to bring it to the United States and with mixed results, but I think you have one in your state, don't you, Lori? Yep, we just opened one in July. Wow. And it, it's um, pretty exciting. In fact, um, where my mom is at, at Volunteers of America, Maplewood Care Center and the Homestead, they are looking at opening one. So we'll have two really fairly close together. And then um, somebody in Canada um, and probably I think there's five other states have contacted me for information. I just got an email from someone else today interested in Wisconsin, wanted some information. I know I've sent information to two or three people in Wisconsin already. Um, so people, there's definitely an interest there. You know, how we're setting ours up, though, is basically it's, it's a total collaboration. And it's viewed that nobody really owns this thing. It's, um, it's kind of done in a goodwill for both the person with dementia and the caregiver. And we really want the group to tell us what it is they want from the group instead of trying to be these know-it-alls. You know, one yeah. of our struggles that we're having is in terms of talking with even some of the professionals, the um, the organizations out there, and 
trying to have them help us promote it is um, they're they're kind of pushing us off because we're not going to use the technical terms. We want to speak the public's language, and so we are saying the group is for people with early memory loss. We don't want to stick people in a stage and make them feel stuck because things ebb and flow, and it's not about the diagnosis. It's about living life and connecting in relationships, and there's a big... Um, there's a big wall there that needs to be broken down. Uh, there sure I, is, and I love the fact that you're not going to use the terminology. We, st- I tried to start in my in my very small town that I lived in at the time, a living with memory loss group, and it mm-hmm. used to be four people who had memory loss. And when I went in to talk to the hospital people, and I developed a proposal, and they said, "Oh, this looks really, really, really good," and they said, "We'll get back to you. I'll talk to the board." Well, they turned. Uh, they ended up refusing us at the same time because it was too. It was too much of a liability for them. But yet they had, they had um, Narcanon, Narcanon and Al-Anon and all these other groups coming in and out. And that was another one of those times where I was really offended by the medical profession. You know, but, I, the liability comes up a lot for a lot of the organizations. I know when we were developing yeah. ours. Um, one of the, the largest organizations around said, well, you can't have somebody with, with memory loss coming by themselves. And I said, <laughs> well, excuse me, why not? And they said, well, because it will turn into like a daycare center. And I said, <laughs> I said, first of all, the group is for people with early memory loss, and probably 90 to 95% of them still drive and work, you know, out there. Yeah. Um, and many probably haven't even been diagnosed, but just feel there's an issue and might have some interest in coming. So, yes, we are definitely going to allow them to come. And if there's an issue, we will deal with it. But I think the bureaucracy, you know, they're so used to trying to not have problems that they just focus on the problem. And that's, you know, that's what they're looking for. And our group has chosen to you know, not look for the problems, but look at the positives. And if if something occurs that we have to deal with, then we'll be as creative as we can to make it work. And then if we can't and we have to make a rule, we'll make a rule, you know, I, to, to address I, it. Yeah, I love that your approach to that. That is just wonderful. I, yeah. I have a story about a friend that um, drove herself in for a follow-up. And I think it was a CAT scan at that point. It might have been a PET scan. I don't really remember. But she drove herself in. She found the office by the, the office by herself. Um, introduced herself to the staff. Made arrangements to get the scan done. And in the process, told the the deaf people that she had dementia. And having gotten herself there on time for the appointment, filled out all the work and everything else, they found out she had dementia, and they wouldn't let her go back to the cafeteria to get coffee. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> I just you know, there's just so many stories like that. You you do have to laugh. It's not funny at the time, but in the long run, you just have to kind of laugh at the medical profession. Sometimes they're very well intended, but they're very limited in their experiences. You know, they they don't know it from the inside out, and they don't know the range. All all they know is the what comes into their office. Yeah, yeah, and again, they they focus on the disabled side instead of the abling side. Right. You know, another thing we ran into with our group was uh, they had uh, a person had made the comment, well, okay, you're having this for, 
you know, care, caregivers or care partners, so the person with dementia and, and their partner, what if the person um, digresses that has the dementia and can no longer be part of the group? You can't let the caregivers come by themselves. And it was like, well, why can't we? And they said, because they don't have a person. And I said, well, first of all, they do have a person. Their person is no longer able to attend. And even if that person passes, they still have a person. And they're still dealing with all the emotions and, you know, the grief process and the loss. Plus, they have so much that they can contribute to others, and I said, no, they will still be welcome to the group. Um, we're not going to kick them when they're down. This is going to be a really difficult time if it comes to that. So our, our philosophy is very open, and again, if our group decides, you know, they don't like that, then we'll change it because, you know, yeah. um, I'm not God. I don't know, um, but we want to be flexible to, to meet the needs of the people who choose to participate. I'm so glad that you resist falling into that kind of thing. I belong to one of those groups that was people with dementia and their partners, um, and we had um, a wonderful guy, uh, a plastic surgeon who had dementia. He was one of the doctors that went with Doctors Without Borders and fixed cleft palates in South American countries all the time and then developed dementia. And his wife was a psychologist, and in our group in the beginning, we all met together, and that was fine. But we had a couple of people in the group who had more rapidly, considerably more rapidly advancing dementia. And it got did get to the point where some of the group members did digress too much or um, had other problems that made it difficult for them to sit long enough to stay with the group. So we ended up hiring a woman who... <clears throat> worked for one of the facilities to come in, and we were in a space where we had the luxury of two rooms. So we would meet together for a few minutes and then give the people with dementia the choice of staying in the larger group or going and meeting privately with this other lady who did activities with them. And um, sometimes it sounded like they were having way more fun in there than we were having in our in our group. Um, it was difficult for me to, to go to those meetings with the place I was with dementia because they were singing Barney songs and, you know, it just, sometimes I can't look too hard down what I call the throat of the dragon. I know where I'm headed. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm not, I have no doubts about that, but I know that where I want to live is right now. I don't want to live emotionally in where I'm going to end up. This is my life. You know, I want to live it. And you should. Don't take it away from me, (laughs) you know. No, it's it's everybody has purpose in every stage. You know, my my mom, this is kind of interesting, is in her end stages and she's been in her end stages for three years now, which is pretty unheard of, you know. Yeah. But um uh, ARP is doing an article on uh, a story on mom and I and um they came out to do pictures yesterday. And, you know, when my mom has a good day she says three words and she has a really good day, the three words make sense, and if she's having a fantastic day, she can string them together. But a lot of times, you know, there's no eye contact. I mean, I can stand right next to her, I can touch her, I can, um, you know, talk to her, and she she just doesn't even know that I'm there, or she doesn't react to me being there, I'll put it that way, because I think she knows I'm there. And 
So yesterday, I'm walking up with a photographer, and I said, you know, I just don't know what to expect. I brought her a Sunday. She likes the Sunday. That usually spurs her on. And she gave, I, I could not believe it, the icon pass to this woman taking pictures. I mean, she was, like, set to go for the camera. <laughs> it was, yeah, you know, cameras it, work for some reason that way. Well, I, I think the reason they do, and this is, you know, nothing um, official, but just from what I've seen when I've used one at the nursing home where my mom lives, I think it goes back to, again, that creative part of the brain that really engages. But, you know, small kids are always, most of them are pretty much hams in front of the camera, and they get, I'm going to take a picture or say cheese. And that's, that's a really basic command that um, is almost embedded in us. And I think it, I don't think it dies. I think it's one of those last things that goes because people who um, many times don't react to anything, I can just touch them on the shoulder and speak nicely and say, would you mind if I take your picture? We'll wake up and smile and pose. And um, it's incredible. It's like the movie Cocoon, you know, and they all jump into the pool (laughs) and, and come to life. Well, yeah. you know, in a lot of cultures, they see a camera as capturing the soul, mm-hmm. and it's, uh, that that image of yourself is so important to people that when somebody comes into a nursing home with a camera, there is one person there who is a paying attention to who they are as a person, and whether they have language left or not, they feel recognized. It's yeah. I, you know it's real clear to me that that's what goes on. I don't exactly know why it works that way, but it's wonderful that it does. Yeah, I think it's a, almost like an energy thing. And yeah. again, anyone who's taken a picture knows you have to you have to pay attention. You cannot not pay attention. I mean, if you really want to capture something, and so it's you know it's just you have the eye contact. I think yeah. that is so powerful. Plus, you're you're talking and. Uh, it's it's just a very intimate thing. Yeah. You know, it when is. you really think about it. And a lot of times we lose the intimacy um when we're dealing with people and, and again it's getting people back to the relationship. And relationships are all about intimacy. Yeah. It they are. And and, and relationship is everything. That's why we're here. We are those social animals. Can, Laura, can we go back and talk about the language issue? Oh, sure. Because I think sure. you and I differ somewhat in that mm-hmm. respect. I agree that we shouldn't put labels on people. You know, that's not good. It's not helpful. Calling a place a daycare center mm-hmm. sounds like, you know, a little kid daycare. It's yep. so much better to have an adult services center, anything other than that, than a daycare center. But I think in the area of the cognitive deficits that people with dementia experience, I think it's really important for people who want to know them to be able to have the labels for things. And those are they're they're big words, but they're not un understandable. When you lose the ability to speak or it begins to go away, you you begin to develop aphasia. And I have that and I know it, although I I am still very 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 verbal, but my vocabulary is was just bigger than almost anybody's. Um, and the fact that I notice the loss of words doesn't mean that the doctors notice it. They say you do fine. 
and you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, I have a better had a better vocabulary than you've ever had. You mm-hmm. can't judge me that way. But if I had been able, the first time I was having trouble going into a doctor for diagnosis, to say I'm experiencing a little aphasia, or and I do have problems with um, agnosia quite a bit, and that is recognizing things, being mm-hmm. able to identify things. Um, there's there's a special kind of agnosia that's called um, anosognosia, no, asimultane agnosia, which means when you look at something on a shelf and there's 12 brands of soup and six flavors within within each brand, looking at it, you cannot recognize the right can of soup, whereas if I take a can off the shelf, turn around, look at it, holding it in my hand, I can read it, and I walk home with the right soup. If I don't do that, I go to the grocery store to buy a tomato soup and come home with celery or shampoos. I do that all the time, end up with a kind of shampoo that I didn't intend to buy. So knowing those words, being able to report those things as they happen to you helps a lot in people, number one, having a sense of mastery over themselves. If I know that I'm having a day when I'm having another one's abulia, uh, I can say to myself, mm, there's that abulia again. And it's not me. It's just this little fragmentary dysfunction, like having a hitch in your get-along. You know, It doesn't attack me if I can label the things that are happening. When you don't have the words, you don't have any opportunity to find solutions. And what I think I'm told I do best is find accommodations for my handicapping conditions. I because I don't always I have terrible visual memory. Oh my gosh, my visual memory is awful. I'm in the ninety ninth percentile still in a lot of verbal ability, but in the second percentile in visual memory. Which means when I walk through my living room I get to the kitchen and I will not remember anything that I saw in the living room. So if there's something on the coffee table that needs to be taken to the kitchen or I notice that there's dust somewhere, I always, this is called verbal mediation, I verbally mediate my experience. I walk by the coffee cup and say, get that coffee cup later. I remember what I've told myself. I don't remember the look of the coffee cup. So there's a lot of things you can do if you can identify what's happening for yourself and then develop your own mechanism for uh, for dealing with them. And, and that requires the language. You, if you don't give me the language to talk about what's happening, you render me an animal. I'm just as mute as my dog who cannot say she has fleas. Now, how does, um, you know, I know you said your verbal skills are really good. And you have on the site, you know, all of these different types. Um, it with descriptions of them, the different words with definitions for people, the easy access for them to reference. Because, again, I, I don't think the doctors really go into detail. A lot of times it can be mumbo-jumbo or else they think, you know, it's not worth explaining um, with some of them. And you're right. If we can, we need to be able to speak each other's languages. Um, yeah. no, no matter what it is, if it's using the word or if it's using being able to describe the word um, so others understand. Right. But is there, is there a place on the website that has these definitions? You know, I haven't been to the website in quite some time, to be honest, because okay. I knew what was there. But if you said you found them there, you must have gone recently. So, yes, I'm t- sure that there is a mm-hmm. list there. 
And again, our website is dasninternational.org. And that's a real good way to connect with us. It's a good way to get some background in history. Um, it's, it's a way to get to speak with us online. I still am happy to take phone calls from people personally. We don't have an office. We've been um, <laughs> telecommuting, all of us, <laughs> for a very long time. So, you know, I take phone calls if people want to talk to me personally. I'm always happy to do that. Sometimes I don't answer my phone, and when I don't do that, it means that I'm online with a student or on the phone with a student. So I say if you miss me, keep trying. Okay. Well, that that is wonderful. I am wondering, and I don't know, I'm just going to put you on the spot and throw this out there, but, um, you know, you filled out my questionnaire, you know, ahead of time, and, and you write beautifully. And I'm just wondering if you might be interested in, doing a guest blog or two for us, and maybe one of them could be with these words and the definitions, because you you explain them not in the clinical sense, where it really makes them, you put a story behind them, so it's much easier to understand sure. for people. Um, but if you're interested in that, I know, I know my readers would love that, and I, I think it would just be such fantastic information because it's so, like when you said, you walk through, you see the coffee cup, I'm not going to remember it, but if I say I'm going to get that coffee cup, you know, right. then it's going to stick. And it's like, oh, okay. And and if there's a way for people to, you know, learn some of these skills to, you know, like like you said, going through the vocational rehab, um, if that's, you know, a helpful factor um, I, I just think that's wonderful because I, I really think that's missing out there. I would be more than happy to do that. One of the things, because I do have training in education and I'm trained as a school counselor, I have given IQ tests uh, for much of my life, so I really understand some of those subtests. And one of the things you look for on an IQ test is the range between a person's top score in one area and their bottom score in another area. And the broader the range, the bigger the difference, the more that is indicative of a learning disability if you're a student. And if you have dementia and you have a range like I do from the 98th percentile down to the 3rd percentile, that is not a normal life. It's like if we were talking about running rather than thinking. On one of my legs, I'm Wilt Chamberlain, and the other one is cut off mid-thigh. It's mm-hmm. not a normal life. And, and that kind of thing I think people can understand if you can explain it. Or the words, my favorite word for today, I think, is something called anosognosia. And ano is like the inability to recognize, sognosia is recognize, the inability to recognize your own disability, your own la- lack of brain function or missing brain functions. Rick, like me, is acutely aware of the things that are the matter with him. But there is a point when the part of the brain that is allows you to recognize the things that are going wrong goes wrong itself, and then you have people who cannot recognize what's happening to them. And when they say that people like that are in denial, it's not denial. It's that they don't have the insight to see what's going on and to understand what's going on with them. Some people are in denial. Some people are not in denial. They're just what I call ignorant. We've not learned enough about what's going on to be able to comprehend it. People like 
those like me need education. People who are in denial need not to have the denial broken down because that's a psychological defense mechanism that's necess- necessary to them. And people who have anosognosia uh, are not in denial either. They just need to be taken care of and forgiven because they're not trying to be like they're being. Yeah, very true, very true. And I, and I think sometimes, you know, as caregivers and, and just general public, everyone thinks everything is done so purposeful against somebody, you know, instead of it just happens, you know. Yeah. There wasn't that much thought behind it. It's just the way things are clicking. Yeah, yeah. For caregivers, I know it's very hurtful the first time they go in and somebody does not recognize them. Recognize, that's from gnosia, just like the same kind of kind of word. Um there's many, many, many forms of recognition. I have no visual or very little visual recognition. I obviously do function just fine, but when it comes to faces, that's where I'm in the most difficulty. I walked into the nursing home for, with, to see a friend who I was sort of responsible for at one point, even though I had dementia, and um, he didn't recognize me. And I, I re- re- realized that feeling of, oh, no, I've lost him. And it wasn't that at all. Once I started talking, he recognized my voice, and we were fine. So even those things are like little discrete functions along the way. There's visual recognition. There's auditory recognition. There's olfactory recognition. I know you do that. You you wear certain uh, perfumes around your mother, don't you? Yeah. To be recognized? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Those are all different things. And I think there's also... Tactile recognition, I'll, uh, and I've not seen it in print anywhere, but I'm, I totally believe in it. And people know the difference be, between being touched lovingly and being touched functionally. The last thing we lose, usually, I think, is the sense of touch. So she may not know who's there. She not be, may not be able to say, that's you, isn't it, Laurie? But touching your mother in a loving way, doing the hand massages like I know you do, that is putting the person back in their relationship. And that is crucial because I've lost my past, most of it anyway, and I can't be in the future because there's nothing to anticipate. All I have is right this moment. And if you are relating to me right now, I am living. The rest of the time I'm drifting, and believe me, I know how to do that too. I still drift really good. (laughs) I try not to. You know, we all do, and we know when someone's not paying attention to us. And that doesn't go away. I just did a a video on um, YouTube called um, A Shell of a Body or A Shell of a Soul. And it really talks about it because it drives me nuts when people go, oh, they're just a shell of a body, and they're ready just to dismiss this person who has dementia. And there's such a big difference because it's not about dismissing the shell because the soul lives on and it connects on multiple levels. And it's up to us to still make that connection and not be judgmental when those connections come, but just know that we can still connect. and, and, And it does happen. I mean, my mom has shocked me over and over and over at the time she has just, them so clear and so concise and I, I just it, it it brings me to tears because and it, and it just reinforces and gives me hope 
that this isn't all for naught. You know, she really is still there. She just can't always communicate the way she used to. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. Um, like like as Rick said, he, he thinks he has memory loss, but what he has is memory inaccessibility. The connections between here and Jan are interrupted at the moment. And as a teacher, I knew that so well because I would work with kids with learning disabilities. And one day I'd work with one student for 30 minutes and, you know, explain this thing and explain this thing and drill it, drill it, drill it until I was confident that they knew that particular thing 100%. And they'd come in the next day to take the test and fail the question. It would drive <laughs> me bats. Well, that day, that particular connection was lost to them. But if you gave them enough cues and worked with them a little bit, you would realize that the understanding was still there, although it wasn't necessarily accessible. And they can't be blamed for that any more than a person with dementia can be blamed for not remembering. Now, there is a time you know, that the lack of access is one thing, but there's also a time when you get so much information overload, like you were talking about, Laura, that... Mm-hmm your mind can't process all of it, so it lets some stuff never even registers in the first place. And although I didn't recognize it at the time, that was one of my very first um, clues that I was developing dementia, was that I was traveling as a consultant, and my boss would call me and say, go here and there and talk about this or that program. And I'd say, okay. And, um, you know, I was I had a good memory before and uh, I'd get a call from her like a month and a half later, and she'd say, Carol, you didn't go. What, what what happened there? And I would say, you didn't tell me I needed to go. And I meant it, and she meant it. You know, uh-huh. It never even registered. It wasn't that I lied to her when I said you didn't tell me. It was that I had absolutely no memory. It was never there that she had told me to be somewhere. So that's when I started really seriously having to write things down and not write them down when I got home, but write them down on the spot when somebody would tell me something or else I wouldn't have it by the time I got home. Sure. It's weird. I can sit here and I don't do it too often anymore because I am so much better. I, I had a heart attack and open heart surgery and a lot of so, and my vessels were restored. So a lot of the neurons that I thought were dead were just really checked out and starving at the moment. But oh, I forgot where I was going with that. See, there it goes. <laughs> what was I saying? <laughs> well, you know, it's just it's it's the way it goes. I mean, with all of us, and and it's okay. You know, it's 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 okay. It's it's nothing to be embarrassed about. It's nothing. You know, again, it's that whole stigma thing. It's just the way it is, and it happens to all of us at different times, and. You know, we just have to learn to deal with it. We need to be gracious about it yeah. and and not judge others. But I think, too, and, and again, I don't have, you know, memory loss, though my daughter would argue that. <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, you know, I think sometimes we are our own worst judges. You know, we are so critical and get so upset where a lot of times people don't even notice many things. But we, you know, when we're conscious of something that we're not doing right, I don't, you know, or, or not doing up to the expectation that we used to, it's so much more more noticeable sometimes to us than anybody else, and yeah. and we put that importance on us, and and I think we do that, you know, as people in general, just throughout life, you know, illness or not. Right. 
and I, I, as I think I told you when we talked earlier, I am a perfect person to talk about dementia because not only have I been a lot worse off than I was before the heart attack when I couldn't speak a complete sentence without stammering over words in the middle, I also have um, diabetes. And when you have diabetes, when your blood sugar gets too low, you get so so dysfunctional cognitively that I have sat there with the paramedics, Rick, you'll know this, uh, looking right at me and saying, well, how do you feel now? And I'm looking at them, and I understand the question, and I know the answer, but I just can't quite work hard enough to get it out of my mouth. So I, I regularly go back and forth, back and forth, into and out of various various levels of dementia. And uh, I don't like it, but it makes me pretty insightful, I think. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Well, I think the other thing, you know, that I, <clears throat> I talk about in terms of how we learn, and I would like your your input on this and what your thoughts are, but um, or how we, I should say, how we react to things is typically it's our attitude plus our plus our past experience creates our perceptions, and then our perceptions are what trigger our response. And that right. that equation doesn't change. It's just interpreted differently. Yes, yes. And and I think if people can come to realize that, again, it's not the you know the care the, the person giving the care is not as likely to blame or feel bad about what's happened or feel embarrassed. They just understand the dots are being connected differently. But we're so used to beating ourselves up or thinking that we're not good enough, yeah. in, especially yeah. in these close relationships. And we take it personally, and it, it's not meant to be a personal attack. Right. No. And the, the way that we um, react to things, you know, I, I have ACT stand for, it's an automatic um, connection that's just trained. It's just that equation. It's that process. It just don't. It just happens. Yeah. Yeah. And well, you're right. You are absolutely right. I'm curious to know. I still see we have a number of listeners. Nobody's called in yet. I know it. We'd love to have a caller in. In fact, Rick had to drop off the line here, so she's not oh. with us right now. But if anybody does have some questions, we'd be more than glad to take them. I haven't seen anybody put a question on the chat line either, but um, Tabby would love to answer anything that you might uh you might have hanging out there um, that you're just dying to know. Um, one of the things that I really like too, Tabby, is when you were talking about, you know, your kind of the group, the memory cafe type style group, and how when you talk to somebody else's spouse, you were able to kind of get him to understand what his wife yeah. was trying to tell him. I, again, I think that's just something really normal. It's like how many times, you know, you, you try to tell your kids something, but, you know, you're a parent, so you don't know anything, but their friend tells them the same dang thing. And then, poof, all of a sudden they come up and they're like, you know, I can do it this way. <laughs> and life is fine, and it's, it's now become their idea. But it's, I think these groups just offer validation. Right. And And it's easier to understand sometimes when you just, hear it repeatedly through different molds. Absolutely, absolutely. And validation is so important. 
it was so important for us because our experiences of life are pretty strange at times. And to have somebody else say, I do that all the time. When it comes from a person with dementia, that's very validating. When I hear a caregiver say that, my reaction is, no, you don't. You've done it enough times that it recognizes you and it's concerning you, but you don't do it 15, 20 times a day. I'm yeah. sure you don't do that. So validate somebody to validate my experiences is really important to me, and I think caregivers have that way more also. Their experience, their, the experience of caregiving an adult is unlike any other kind of caregiving in the world. Yeah, our our next show coming up, we're actually going to have um, spouses who care for their partners because you know that's a that's a whole other level of care too. And so I'm really excited to have um, Eileen Smith and um, Mary Beth Watson on um, to talk about that because you know if you're a child, if you're a spouse, if you're a neighbor, you know whatever it might be, you know professional, it's all different. Um, levels of care and levels of acceptance. Um, one of the things I hear from professional caregivers all the time is, you know, we don't understand why the family is so upset at this person because we love this person. You know, they're just great. But they don't have the history, you know, that was developed. They don't have the relationship. They're not feeling the loss that, you know, the family is seeing. And so we really need to be able to talk about those things and I think train people not on a statistical push or base or even research base. I think it really has to come, so much of this um, care partnering really has to be emotionally based training. It has to be felt um, to be understood and implemented um, and to be accepted. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I well, I agree, and we don't emo- give people emotional training in just about anything. So, if if you learn have learned how to do that, I think that's just the most important thing. Really, it is. It, it, there's nothing that beats it. Emotion. Um, our, my friend Christine Bryden, who mm-hmm. is the woman in Australia who developed dementia and wrote the book Who Will I Be? Books Who Will I Be When I Die? And then uh, Dancing with Dementia. In Dancing with Dementia. She said that a person with dementia is on a very important journey, and it's a journey that we all go through, and it's a journey out of cognition into emotion because we have emotion much longer than we have cognition. Emotion is much deeper in the brain, and so it's um, out of cognition into emotion, through emotion and into spirit. She's a Christian counselor, and she really believes that, and I do too. You know, I know when the cognition is going away, I know right now that the emotion is always there. Sometimes I don't like the emotions that I have. Sometimes they come out of my mouth when I wish they wouldn't. Mm-hmm. But I know that in the end, even after after that's all over, this spirit remains. Yeah. Um, Joel, I had Joel Skillion on who wrote a book. Um, what was it called? Alzheimer's. He's in the archives. I want to say Alzheimer's when it comes to your your home. And uh-huh. he talks, he has this fabulous book that talks about emotions are not good or bad. It's what we do with them that can be good or bad. Um, right. But that they need to be felt and accepted. And he uh, he and his wife took in um, 
his mother-in-law, and she lived with them. And, and he said, you know, it was really difficult because they were, you know, they felt trapped at times because it was 24-7 care. And, you know, how did they deal with that? How did they get the rest of it? And he said, you know, my feelings weren't always the nicest. I was angry. I was frustrated. And he, But he also goes on to say the joy and the love so much outweighed those times. And in his book, he has some prayers and exercises um, for caregivers. And it's just very simple but heartfelt. And I think really um, just helps people in terms of dealing with the emotions because a lot of people don't like to deal with their emotions, period. Right. You know, and then you add the stress of of giving care um, or being a care partner um, on top of that, and then you worry about the judgments of others or I, you know, I can't, I can't be angry, I can't do this, I can't do that. Um, when I was pregnant. Um, this is kind of an example of it. I I did not like being pregnant. And I had eight girlfriends who were all pregnant and thought it was the best thing <laughs> that sliced bread. And I didn't, I was sick. I, I, I think I got depressed, and I'm not a depressed person normally, but my hormones were whacked. I mean, I was just crazy. Um, <laughs> I'd crying all the time, and I, I just, over nothing. And it was a, it was an absolutely miserable nine months for me. And I talked openly about that, and my girlfriends would just look at me like, well, we don't understand that. And I thought, I'm, I'm not going to pretend. That's just not who I am. I'm very whatever it is, you're going to hear it from me. And 21 years later, one of my girlfriends pulled me aside and said, I just have to tell you something. And I'm like, what, what, you know? And she said, you remember when we were all pregnant together? And I said, yes. And she said, remember how much you hated being pregnant and how sick you were and the rest of us were all just loving it? She said, I was right there with you, but I was so afraid what people would say oh. if I let them know oh. yeah. of the judgment. And I think that occurs a lot when we're in these caring relationships. And you can't get by that if you don't talk about it. Right. right. Feelings are real, whatever they are. Mm-hmm. And I would add to that that perceptions are real, whatever oh, they definitely. are. I know you talk about often, or I hear people talk to me about, um, um, well, I, I, I don't want to lie to her. You know, I I don't want to say this or that or the other. She says this or that, and and that's not true. What you perceive is true for you. And although a person with dementia's perceptions may be skewed compared to yours, they're still theirs. And it's silly of you to ask me to substitute your perception of reality for my perception of reality. You know, the brain doesn't let you do that oh, I'm going to check out and hand this all over to the person standing next to me and they'll tell me what to perceive. We t- our brain is not built to be able to do that. So when a person with dementia reports what they see, it doesn't help to try to correct it. You can't reorient them when they're disoriented. I walked into the nursing home once uh, to visit my friend who, who had had strokes and um, we didn't know why. I didn't know when I got there and we didn't know why later. He developed delirium that day. And I walked in and I said, how are you doing? And he said, I'm doing fine. And I said, what are you doing? 
because he was kind of moving his hands on his lap, and I, he said, I'm rolling bandages in the field hospital. Okay. Now, it occurred to, he didn't know that he was in the nursing home. He didn't sure. know that, that I wasn't going to be visiting him at the field hospital when he was in wherever it was that he was. He was in the military. Uh, so I just had to say, oh, you got a lot to do there now? Are you kind of backed up? Do you mind if we visit while you work? I, You know, I didn't feel like I was lying to him. I was just joining him in his reality, whatever it was at that point in time. And so when, when I hear this a lot, uh, somebody says, some daughter says, my mother's accusing somebody of stealing her wallet. You know, and you can react to that and not say you're wrong by saying, well, I can see that you're worried that it's missing. I'll help you look for it. Mm-hmm. It's, that's not lying. No. You know, and going through the activity is joining them in their reality. And it's just it's easy if you think about things that way. It's exhausting sometimes. I just know that about that. But it can be easy. You you talk about having spouses. I may try to get my friend uh who is the wife of the plastic surgeon to call in. She's a uh psychologist and a Christian counselor and married to this guy who was very powerful and he's tall and he's wiry and he's still really active and he was quite a credible person as a doctor you know uh the role reversal there has been difficult for her not just because uh it's exhausting to do what she does but with him he can take a notion that he's going to go and he's done this in the middle of a storm take his boat out into the metal boat into the middle of the lake and she can't even get to him fast enough to keep him out of the boat. You know, oh, so she con- was constantly on her guard. She now has some some caregivers to come in and help her because she needs to be spelled to keep her own sanity and to be able to continue to work. I really worry about caregivers that give up their jobs altogether because so many people drop out of the workforce to take care of people with dementia, and then they can't get back in. Yeah. Now, especially in this market. Oh yeah, yes, yes, worse now than it ever was. But, but that, I had those experiences with friends twenty years ago too. A gal that, that taught um, or that coordinated programs at a at a local college, and she'd done it for twelve years, and she loved her job. And her mother got into the advanced stages of dementia, and she dropped out. She thought for a year or two to be with her mother while her mother was in her last stages. And when she came back, it was like she'd never been there. She could not get another education job. And that was really sad. At any rate, I don't want to end this on a bad note because I think what you do is wonderful. I think what Rick does is wonderful. We would be happy to have people um, who want to join our group, whether they're caregivers or people with dementia, to join our Yahoo group. But at this point, I think Rick's community is so large and he's doing such wonderful things, and the stuff you're doing is so wonderful that it's. I feel like maybe Dassin has already served its purpose. We got things rolling, and I'm really proud of what we did. But there's so many more resources now. That well, uh, you know, one of the things though that I find in talking with people is they want more than one resource. You know, because mm-hmm. not everybody fits in each group. And so, you know, I think it would be great. You know, maybe there's a way for you guys and, and Rick to even team up, you know, or just, um, you know, partner up a little bit. I, I don't know. 
Um, but I really think we're in a day and age about collaboration and not being afraid of the other group taking over. And I'm not saying that that, that you are um, yeah. by, by any stretch. But I think with a lot of organizations, that's what's happening out there. They think they own the disease. Uh, or they, you know, they own the term, and that just isn't the case. Everybody is looking for different things at different times, and so I, I think it's a matter of getting the options and the information to people so that they can make the choice that's right for them, wherever they're at. Boy, um, I agree with you a lot on that. I I have been on committees with national organizations, and all they wanted to talk about was branding. Mm-hmm. We're going to get our brand this way, and we want to position ourselves that way. And you know, I'm 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 for the more the merrier. Yeah, you know. that's how I am. That's actually why I created the the resource website, Alzheimer Speaks, was because I just felt that I did not want to be judge and jury of what the next guy needs and when they need it. And I wanted also to <clears throat> look at it from a you know I hate to use the word holistic, but whole person. Um, yeah. approach because I don't want people to think it's all new age but you know sometimes you do just need a massage <laughs> you know or yeah. maybe you need um, a psychologist or maybe you need um, housing help maybe you need someone with finances or maybe you just need a, a, an ear to hear or a chat room to talk to um, there's so it's endless. It's absolutely endless of what our needs are as people of the world and, you know, the journeys that we're on. And I think we need to share um, all of those resources between the patient, the caregiver, which is a family member, and the, the professional caregiver as well as business services. And, and to me, it's such a disinjustice when we try to separate everybody because we have to speak the same language. Right. I think I think one of the things that's going to happen with the recession is that people are going to have to get out of that mindset of I'm going to hand this to somebody else mm-hmm. to deal with, and we're going to all have to help each other more. As it happened in the in the depression, people just sort of took care of people. I I hear lots of my friends talk about their parents. And how when they were children, whole families would just show up and be living in their house for a couple of months. And nobody was saying, oh, my gosh, this is this terrible trauma and blah, 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 blah. It was just a fact of life. Yeah, yeah. It was it was about getting through it together. And, I, you know, I think dementia is here to teach us that lesson that we have lost as a world. Yeah. I really do. Well, I, I cannot... Thank you enough, Tabby, for joining us. And I have to say one of your quotes um, that I, I love, and that is, a problem that has no name carries no solution. And, you know, when it comes to dementia, that is so critical because you you can't fix what you don't know is broken or why it's broken. You can't fix and, it and you can't accommodate it. And lots of things have accommodations. That That's the American spirit. We made it out to the West somehow, despite rivers and mountains and all this kind of stuff. We need that kind of resilience again and that kind of in, that determination. Definitely. So thank you so much for having me. I would love to write a guest blog at some point, and um, 
I'd be happy to talk to anybody that wanted to talk. You have my phone number. I think I'll not just get distributed online, but I really don't have any difficulties with talking to individuals. It's been my personal goal always to talk to people who who have just gotten that sucker punch of a diagnosis when they didn't expect it and suddenly they're robbed of their lives and they cannot think of any reason to continue. I was there. I know what that feels like. And I'm here to say that there is life after diagnosis. You can have fun. Life can be good. You can still contribute. You know, stick with us. That that is wonderful. And you you have spoken so eloquently today. Um, I, it's just been beautiful. It reminds me of, and I don't know if you've seen this, but Dr. Richard Taylor has a new video he's released. Oh, and, Richard is wonderful. I know Richard, yeah. And it's called Live Outside the Stigma. And if anybody is looking for just a phenomenal video, it's like $35, but it is well worth the purchase. I personally think every person in the world should see this video, not just those dealing with the disease. But he talks so so calmly and so, oh, it, it, it just, it's like heart-wrenching in a good fashion because he just, he gets it. You know, he he gets it so deep and he's able to explain that there is life with the disease and there is purpose and he talks about how to break down the barriers. But you can get the video at www.bestdementiavideos, and that's plural, and books.com. So it's bestdementiavideosandbooks.com. I am missing part of what you're saying. You say www, and then it sounds to me like duck is in quack quack. Oh, oh, okay. And it's best, B-E-S-T. Best dementia. Best, okay. Yes. I'm not articulating well. Best dementia, uh, dementia videos, plural, and books, and that's plural.com. Okay. I would love to see that. And Richard yeah. and I have talked on the phone, and we've been Dassin members together, and he has just done so much for the field. I was especially grateful when he was on the committee that the Alzheimer's Association had an advisory group for people with um, of people with dementia to the association because that was mm-hmm. one of the things that Dassin has thought from the beginning is that the Alzheimer's Association has until within the last maybe five years really been the Alzheimer's Caregivers Association. Mm-hmm. And we believe that in the early stages we are still autonomous and comp- competent people. Mm-hmm. We are the authorities on the disease. And we should be allowed some ownership in the control and governance of organizations that say that they are there to serve people with dementia. I love that. I love that. Now, are you? is your organization doing anything for Dementia Awareness Day that Norms McNamara over in the UK started? Um, some individual members members are participating in that. Norms is in our group, and he has promoted what he's doing. And because it's an online group, I really don't know what everybody is doing. It's a wonderful idea. Um, I, I I like that a lot, and I think it's an aspect of what is empowering for us to advocate for other people. When I couldn't work anymore, I had to have a purpose for my time. And that was what I chose to take up, was advocating for others 
who had lost the ability to speak when I still could. And I'm here to tell you that after I am in my coffin, I will still be commenting on the experience. <laughs> so I, I am happy to have this chance to speak for pe- other people with dementia as well. And I would encourage everybody that uh, can f- to find Norm's activities as well and to to participate. It's a, it's a way of um, it's a way of being generative again in your life. You know, it's a kind of mentorship. This is not a club that you want to be a specialist in, having Alzheimer's disease. That's not for what I what I would have set out to be famous for. But it's the closest I'm probably ever going to come to being famous is having yeah. dementia. Well, and I am I am just amazed at at all that the people who have dementia are doing. And I think it is so. It's my personal thought. I think. I think it is so undervalued um, and acknowledged and appreciated because I just I just sit back in awe of the power and the perception and um, the change that is taking place on this grassroots effort. And I, I personally, I think it's shameful that we're not tapping into that um, and working together more. I agree. It, it is always puzzling puzzled me how um, the Alzheimer's associations around the world see death and did in the beginning see death and as a competition. Yep. We're not trying to corner their market at all. <laughs> we couldn't if we wanted to, and we never wanted to. So, yeah, the collaboration is the effort. And if there's any way I can do more with for you, I'd be happy to do it. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Well, this has been fantastic. I um, Again, Debbie, I cannot thank you enough. And if anybody wants to email, um, they can contact through the website. Is there an email link there or should they? Yeah, there's a, we, we have an email at uh, D, D as in dog, A as in apple, S as in Sally, N as in noodle, international.org. Um, uh, that's an international at gmail.com. Okay, at gmail.com if they want to email. Okay. And then it would be the same thing except .org to get to the website then. Right, and to to meet some of the other members there and see what they're doing or have done. That will get you to both uh, our Yahoo group and it will also get you to our daily chats. Okay. Is there anything you would like to wrap up and um, maybe tell our listeners um, if it is, Something about Dassin in terms of uh, maybe what was the biggest surprise you've heard from one of your members uh, or something that you want to just say to someone who may be recently diagnosed? Right now I'm not thinking of a biggest surprise because we have so many common experiences. But to people who are recently diagnosed, I would say no matter what other people tell you, there still is life after dementia. You want to hang on, and you want to connect with others that have having, are having similar experiences, whether you go to Rick Phelps Memory People or come visit us. or There are increasing numbers of organizations around the world now. Rick, Rick, Richard Taylor has started groups in several countries. So reach out. That, it's, that's staying alive is staying socially connected. Yeah. Stop being afraid yeah. Yeah. And, and connect. I, I think that's one of the biggest things that 
that needs to be done is to remove this fear and just let people know they're not alone. Right. And it's that others care. So thank you again so much. I do want to tell people about our next show coming up, which is September 7th, and it's entitled Memory Loss, How Caring for Your Spouse is Different. And that will be with Eileen Smith, who is over in New Zealand, and then Mary Beth Watson, who is here in the States. And that will be uh, 3 p.m. Eastern Time. And we also have on the 8th, um, Doug, Dr. Doug Warnell, our geriatric psychologist who was scheduled to be on last week, um, will be coming back. He ended up being in a car accident. And so on the 8th at 7 p.m. Eastern, um, we will be talking with Doug, and he has written a book called Wandering Explorers, and he talks about the practical dementia. On the 12th, we are going to have Mike Shermling, who is the chairman of the board, and Andrew Sandler, who is the executive director of Abe's Garden. And Abe's Garden, I'm very excited to have them on the show as well. It's going to be a brand new concept um, that we have not seen in the U.S. And what it is, is basically it will be a housing community that will also have a um, a 24-hour day program. So if somebody uh, needs uh, respite for three hours or three weeks or if they want to come every day at a certain time, no matter what time, um, they'll be able to handle that. And they will also have a research center um, on site. So that's going to be pretty cool. And then towards the end of the month, on the 23rd, we are going to have Laura Beck from the Eden Alternative. And she is their dementia specialist there. And then we also have um, Gary LeBlanc, who is, uh, who is an author, and he was a carer for his father. And um, so we've got a lot of neat, neat um, guests coming up that all have something different to add to this this journey that we're that we're on together. If you are memory impaired and interested in sharing your story with the world, you know, please shoot me an email or call me. I would love to talk to you because maybe maybe you could be our next guest on the show. And as you can see from listening today, we're very casual. We just chat like old friends here. And um, but it's important it's important for the world to hear what is going on. So thank you all for listening. And again, if you enjoyed the show, please share it on your Facebook or LinkedIn accounts or tweet it. Um, we're just trying to let people know we're out here and we need to work together. So have a blessed, blessed rest of the week and look forward to talking to you next week. Thank you so much. Hi, I'm Lori LeBay, and I wanted to tell you about Alzheimer's Speaks, which is another great podcast. You see, my own mother lived with dementia for 30 years, and I felt lost. Did you know every three seconds someone in the world is being diagnosed with dementia? Odds are it's going to hit your families, too. We want to help you connect to services, products, tools, research, and stories so you can be prepared. Please subscribe to Alzheimer's Speaks on your favorite podcast platform.